That's right. 750,000 podcasts. And we are going to just straight away call Jeff. We are dialing the number now. We are waiting. We are waiting. And we hear the dial. One ringy dingy. Two ringy dingies. Hello? Jeffrey? Yes? Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the moment you've waited for, the reason that you're now sitting cross-legged, looking at your old Crosley radio, which you're handing your chin, wearing your little PJs, has arrived. Uh, for your listening pleasure, from Los Angeles, California, from the beautiful Pacific Ocean right on the beach, it's Jeff Abagov. Jeff, good morning. Good morning. Good morning, everyone out there, however you're sitting. Everyone out there in Radio Land, listen, everyone in Radio Land. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Mr. Abagov is a, a prolific uh, author. He's written two novels, uh, fiction novels. He's written uh, Zombies versus Aliens versus Vampires versus Dinosaurs and Time Travel for Love and Profit. They're both great, fun reads. Um, they're great summer reads, and we are... You know, it's weird. His kids are already going back to school. As far as I'm concerned, August is, is prime summer. But uh, if you're looking for a great summer read, these are the novels that you should take to the beach or the bathroom. Um, not only has he written those, he has been a television producer for uh, legendary shows, Roseanne, the early uh, iteration of Roseanne, Grace Under Fire, and so many more. How are you, pal? I'm doing good, thanks. How are you? Good. So you got my text last night. I did. So Jeff always asks me to remind him by, via text the night before if we're going to be on the air. I'm going to be 64. Jeff's going to be at 68 or 69. So um, What? No, Jeff is younger than me. So we've got, a, <laughs> we've got a younger man asking an older man to remind him of something. You see where that leads to all sorts of hijinks. <laughs> Could be a show. A really bad one, but nonetheless. Do you ever, you know, as a writer, and you're a prolific, I mean, you're a, you're a writer. So um, you said to me one time, I go, what's it take to be a writer? You go, well, first you got to write. So uh, say, say that again? I, I asked say? you, I said, what does it take to be a writer? And you said, well, well, first you have to write. So, oh, right. <laughs> and so many people uh, are convinced that, especially television writers, that... They go, well, I have an idea. I, you've encountered this, and I've heard people say it. They go, I got a great idea for a TV show. I just don't know how to... We just, I just have to find someone who knows how to write it like that. And, yeah. and their, their idea usually is, is vague and weird. So uh, you write every day. Even when their idea is good. I mean, for one... It's really not never the idea, it's the execution of the idea. I'm sure everyone out there can think of a ton of TV shows, books, movies, plays, that great idea and they see it and it's horrible, or they could hear an idea that, oh, I don't, that sounds stupid, I don't want to see that, but they're dragged to it and go, wow, that was great. I think I think so, you just said something very important. I just want to—I I don't want to interrupt you, but you said it's never the—it's it, not, it's not often. It's not the idea; it's the execution of the idea. Yes. So um, 
I was sitting with a bunch of producers one time. We're getting ready to go into a screening of a movie that didn't go anywhere. I mean, they put a lot of work into it, but the movie just didn't happen. And uh, just for fun, we're sitting there having dinner. I go, can I pitch an idea to you guys? And I saw their eyes glaze over, and I saw they ca- caught their breath. One of them goes, well, I really wish. I go, hold on. You're going to love this. You know what I go? I go, a guy meets a girl. Uh, they fall in love. He loses the girl, but then he gets the girl back. Okay, the guy had to be joking. I was. That was me. I said that, and I was joking. But they, for oh, okay. a second, and it took him a second to sit there and go, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oddly enough, though, yeah. isn't that the basis of a lot of movies, films, and stories? It, it, it's, a, it's one of the <laughs> formulas. I mean, literally, I mean, there are certain, it's boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. I mean, they were calling it that in, like, the 1930s, I think. Uh-huh. It's, it's an actual formula that is still used in, rom- in rom-coms. So let me ask you and, this. Okay, go and ahead. rom-dramas. So let me ask you this. Are the formulas, because I have a theory, people go, well, it's, it's a formula, and I go, well, it's because it's based on the way human beings interact with one another. Aren't the formulas just really that? They're just, this is how the majority of human beings interact with one another, and we're just telling human beings stories over and over again? Um, I think it's a combination of that, because I don't think in real life every, you know, good relationship started with they were dating, and then they broke up, and then they got back together and lived happily ever after. I'm not saying that never happens. I think it's less common. I think what's more common is they meet, they like each other, they keep seeing each other, they like each other more, they get married and live happily ever after. But that's a really boring story. Yeah. So to make that story interesting is, what if they break up in the middle? No, I think formulas are there because um, they touch something in the human, you know, in the human condition. Um, Like, you know, David versus Goliath is a classic story replayed over and over and over. Now, let's face it, in real life, Goliath usually wins. Yeah. But when, but if you judge by fiction, David almost always wins. But we love that because we're David. I've got a question for you. Uh huh. So somebody, I read that, uh, I read this somewhere recently, um, and someone said, "You know why people root for the underdog? People root for the underdog because most people consider themselves losers, and they can identify with the underdog." I'd say loser is a little bit harsh, but I think most people consider themselves the underdog because they are. I mean, every time you have to call your phone company, your cable company, Amazon to complain, and you're put on hold for 20 minutes, you're the underdog. There's nothing you can do about it is how you feel. I don't know if I'd call you a loser. Yeah, yeah. Why are you calling me a loser? Well, you specifically, sure. (laughs) 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 Speaking more to to, to the listeners out there. You know, there's a, uh, in in the the movie Wall Street, and and, and this will get to a point, because it was the thing, I was told one time by a veteran comic, he goes, here's how you know if a comic's good. I go, what? He goes, you know, look, he goes, you go into any place and people are laughing. You know, and you go, how do you tell the difference? He goes, here's how you'll know. 
I go, how? He goes, if you remember at least one of their jokes. And I found it to be true over the years. It'd be somebody who I haven't seen in 20 years. And I go, met your name. I go, that guy's got a joke. And I remember a specific joke. There is a specific scene in the movie Wall Street that has always stayed with me. And Michael Douglas and Charlie Sheen are in the back of a limo driving down the street. And Michael Douglas is kind of working his, whatever you would call it, his curse, his magic on Charlie Sheen. And they're at a stoplight. He points out the window and there's a really well-dressed guy waiting to cross the street. And next to him is a bum uh, picking through a trash can. And they're, they're both white males, middle-aged. And he goes, tell me something. He goes, what is the difference between that guy and that guy? And you can't tell me it's just luck. So what is the difference between a successful writer and someone who comes Wait, to... Wait, he didn't finish the story. What was the difference between them? He, well, that what was, was the it. That, 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 there was no answer. He goes, you can't oh, just okay. tell me it's luck. I think there was an answer afterwards, but the, the answer was not as interesting as that shot of a guy wearing an expensive suit, well, you know, well-groomed, okay. waiting across the street, and next to him, another guy of similar age and build and stuff, you know, digging through a trash can, looking for something to eat, you know, dressed shoddily. So the difference was one is wealthy and working, and the other one is poor and hungry in America on a street in New York City in the middle of the day. So what right. is the difference? So, right. I, and the answer, you know, I, I think the answer in my, uh, from the Michael Douglas character had something to do with stealing, you know, because that was a guy who believed in stealing. There, he was a, he was a uh, harbinger of, uh, of uh, that was the beginning in America of uh, uh, the, the, the uh, total uh, looking down on the concept of ethics and business. Because Martin Sheen right. uh, represented that character, the, the uh, airline mechanic who was a union guy who was fighting to try to keep jobs. You know, he, he, was, he, was, building, he was building little dams as a, a, a tsunami was coming in. But right. what, what, is the difference, what is the difference to you between the really successful writer and someone who becomes this bitter weirdo who goes, well, you know why? Because Hollywood sucks and it's all... Well, there's, okay, first I want to just preface, you're, you're asking what's the difference between success and not success, which is a different question than what's the difference between a good writer and a bad writer. All right, let's, okay. go, let's go with good writer, bad writer. Okay, I'll go with whichever one you want, but um, they are two different questions. Okay. There are, I mean, there are good writers who just, for whatever, for a number of reasons, for whatever reasons, who never caught on, who never found their break, and there's a lot of successful crappy writers, and I could prove that by just saying, turn on your television set, yeah, <laughs> turn, go go online and start streaming. Um, there's crap out there, <clears throat> and it's usually not always, but usually written by bad writers. Sometimes good writers write something good and it gets messed up. But so um, the difference between a good writer and a bad writer, I, I think it's really to some extent subjective. What's the difference between a good singer, uh, no, a good song and a bad song? Well, it's somewhat subjective. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. Why, why is that funny? Because <laughs> of a conversation you and I had Sunday night. 
about right about, Genesis. About, yeah, exactly. You I was like, thinking that too. And by the way, I heard a song by Ten CC the other day, and you came to mind. I went Ten CC was better than Genesis. Okay, we don't have to waste the viewers' <laughs> time on repeating that argument where you were wrong. But anyway, <laughs> there was no argument because I was correct. But go ahead. No, well, that, that's my point. I mean, if someone's not like one could objectively say the best music is classical music, and someone who loves classical music can say Broadway or Sinatra or any other genre is inferior or bad, but. That's not really true. I mean, most people actually don't like classical music. Um, so I don't believe there's an actual objectivity in art. That said, like, I could go see a movie. Typically, I'm not a big fan of Jane Austen, although I'm aware she's good because so many people <laughs> think she's good and her work has lasted this long. Yeah. Um, so I could go see, a mo you know, one of movies based on the books and say the cinematography is astounding the acting's good the structure of the story is proper da 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 and I'm bored out of my mind yeah so is that a good movie or a bad movie you might think because you know you're a little effeminate you might think it's, it's a great you know, movie it's, you know <laughs> there's no need for that from a man who I, I know, know waxes I know. his eyebrows you wax your I eyebrows know. so um Here's the question. Can I take the same? It's not a question, but you can also take the same source material, say uh, Jane Austen, and you can then uh, massacre it as you're making yeah. a film. Or you can then make it where it would not normally be accessible to other people and they, um, they would like it. Uh, you know, there was a movie a number of years ago called 10 Things I Hate About You that was based on um, a Shakespeare play. Well, Taming of the Shrew, right? Taming the Shrew, yeah. And I and certain friends of mine are going, see, this is what Hollywood does. It sucks because it just takes art. And I go, well, yes, but in a way, they're taking a story that is based on a, a great Shakespearean play and making it accessible to a teenage audience and possibly some of that audience later on will be elevated as they realize that and then read the actual... Uh, I, I agree. And what they say, those people say the same thing about West Side Story. Yeah. So West Side Story was... Yeah, let's Romeo, Romeo and, Juliet. and Juliet in modern day New York about gangs. Well, it's not modern day anymore, but it was when it was made. Yeah, I don't know if it was um, even New York then. I don't think that gangs sit there and had had uh, dance offs for. Uh, say that again. I don't think gang, gangs had dance offs in uh, nineteen sixty Manhattan. No, but, no, it was it was a work of fiction. It was they made it. Let's do a Broadway version of Romeo and Juliet. And Broadway versions had, had dance. You know, on the on the on the subject of uh, uh, on the subject of subjectivity and what's good and what some people say. Well, if something lasts, it's good. You know, but um, I was listening to some Buddy Holly music the other day, and I don't know if you were a Buddy Holly fan. I was. Yeah. So um, and I mean, I became a Buddy Holly fan like twenty five years after the fact. Like, I just kind of discovered him in, like, the 70s. Yes, yes. Buddy Holly did kind of, like, disappear uh, not too long after his death. Um, you know, it, he wasn't Elvis, you know, where there was that, that massive persona that, right. uh, that carried on. There was no cult around him. But the weird thing was that music continued on. I became aware of Buddy Holly 
through the Grateful Dead because they took Not Fade Away and kind of did their version of it and it became a big part of their shows. And I didn't go, I wonder, did they write that song? And then I look and go, oh, Holly, what is it? So, you know, I discovered, and then I go, what else is it? And then you realize that so many songs that you liked, you go, oh, that was a Buddy Holly song? And then I realized that a lot of kids, even now, I recently heard a, um, a newer band doing a version of, um, I think, Not Fade Away, which is, you know, really popular because of that beat. But, uh, and I've heard newer bands doing Peggy Sue, etc. And I don't hear any new bands doing Sinatra. A bunch of kids don't get in a garage and go, all right, let's play I've Got You Under My Skin, okay? So... Yes. Is, is Buddy Holly more important than Frank Sinatra in continuing music and a music tradition? Is his music better because it keeps resonating generation after generation? We don't, I mean, look, just tomorrow some major artist could come up with the, you know, hip-hop version of Sinatra. So we don't know. So no, I wouldn't use that in itself as the test. But going back to originality and Shakespeare, there are many who say Shakespeare wasn't entirely original. Shakespeare was taking kind of like either influenced or ripping off or stealing other things at the time, only those hundreds of years ago and those other things are forgotten in history. Plus, Shakespeare did a lot of things based on real kings, Julius Caesar, Henry the whoever, <laughs> and you know, his people in the know at the time would have said, come on, Julius Caesar wouldn't have said that. <laughs> you know, um, go ahead, go ahead. No, so, um, you know, we've kind of made, shape, like, whatever Shakespeare did or said was completely unique and completely true, which may not be the case. So, you know, in the I, same way when we see a movie now based on a true story, we and then we find out it's not really the true story. We're not really surprised. You know, chances are back then, well, this isn't really the story of Julius Caesar. He changed things to make it a better story. You know, on the subject of uh, William Shakespeare and plagiarism, uh, having read uh, not all of his plays, but having read a few of them, and having seen a few of them performed live, I don't find, I think the mark of a thief oftentimes is that this piece is so, so different than another piece. So with comedy, I've sat there and watched comics before and I've been watching them and I'm watching them and all of a sudden I hear something, my ears perk up and I kind of look up and I go, wow, that was interesting. And then I go, they stole that. Based on everything that they had done previously, and had done after uh, that mm -hmm. particular Joker piece. And then and I, I never just sit there and go, you're a thief. So I've investigated a little bit a couple times, especially in hiring people or having to follow people. and go, yeah, they stole that bit. So um, with Shakespeare, I've never read anything. I go, this is so, so profoundly different from anything else that he wrote are that the style is so incredibly uneven that I, I just don't buy into the, fa the, the concept that a lot of those were written by someone, that some of them were written by someone else or that he stole them because they all seem to have the same style. Well, they could have all been written by someone, one other person. Yeah, I know. It's the Christopher Marlowe. You know, they say the guy named Christopher you know, the, Mar the, the more common one is um, 
I think the Duke of Oxford. He, it was, there's a movie about it. It's really good called Anonymous, um, yeah. which is about it's about if Shakespeare hadn't written the works of Shakespeare and the reason this guy was doing it knew Shakespeare as a front was because he was a noble and writing show business was considered something from peasants. So he kind of wasn't allowed to, and he wasn't supposed to, and it was kind of a disgrace upon his family, but he had this gift. He kind of had to. Um, it's a good movie. Yeah, it's, it's, whether, you believe it or, whether you believe it or not. The thing is, though, even if Shakespeare didn't write the works of Shakespeare, somebody did. <laughs> They're here. And they're important works that stand the test of time. So do you think, do you think that the, um, um, the attacks, whatever you would call it, the, the, the revisionist thoughts on Shakespeare more have to do with, uh, this is kind of a bizarre question, uh, have to do with a, an attack on um, Western culture in general? No. No. I think when you hear, there's a lot of circumstantial evidence pointing to the fact that he didn't write it. Now, no one of them proves it. Everyone that, you, that is brought up, you could say, yeah, but this, yeah, but this, yeah, but this. Um, but when you put them all together, you start going, hmm, maybe he didn't. So I, think, I, so I don't think it's an attack on Western civilization, because again, whoever, somebody did it. Uh-huh. So, so, yeah, I'm... I'm very open on the sub on the topic when you like and when you start hearing the reasons it's like huh i don't want to get into them here because then i'm going to sound like i'm a proponent of he didn't but um it, it's kind of a compelling argument like one is one is after his last play which was um shortly after the death of oxford he, he went back to Stratford, never wrote again. Now, I don't mean that by any means to put myself in his class, but if you're a writer, you have to write. Even if you say, okay, I'm not going to show anything to anybody, you still, it's there. You've got to do it. Um, like singers who decide I'm not going to perform anymore, I'm not going to record anymore. I'm sure they still like sing in the shower or something. Yeah, they might. They might. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of writers, famous writers, who uh, reached a certain point in their lives. Uh, the poet Rimbaud uh, wrote all of his stuff early in his life, and then became a shipping clerk. So, okay. uh, and Dashiell Hammett at some point. The, the the myth, and I don't. It's not entirely true, I don't think. But the myth is Dashiell Hammett. You know who created, um, uh, who wrote the Maltese? Yeah. So uh, for, for for our listeners, he, he he created the modern detective. He wrote the Maltese Falcon, uh, among other things. A great writer. Um, that he uh, and a heavy drinker and a guy who went to jail for being a communist. I mean, the turbulent times. Um, he was told by his doctor, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to die. And he stopped drinking cold turkey. Bam, he was ill. But then never wrote again, you know. Uh, he just hung around Lillian Hellman's house and got sick. So what I said well, again, what the, when I gave that example, that's one of many. So again, each one on the, their own could be yeah, but this, yeah, but this. Yeah. When you put them all together, it's it's pause. You know, it gives pause for concern. 
is all I'm saying. So it leads to a bigger bye. a bigger question that we're not going to have time for today because we got to wrap up. But this has been a great conversation. Uh, but here's the here's the question. It and I think the conclusion we're coming to is that it doesn't make any difference if William Shakespeare, in, in the great scheme of things, it doesn't make any difference if William Shakespeare wrote all of his plays or any of his plays, but that we have the plays because the plays are important because they help us understand our own lives. Would you agree with that? I would. Which leads us to the modern question, which we'll talk about next week. Um is that when it, right now, as we see uh, so many uh, artists uh, under fire because of their personal lives, whether it's real or imagined or conflated, does it matter if what they've done in their personal life, should that affect whether I look at their painting, listen to their record, watch their movie? I believe no. Yeah, so, and, you know, and, and we'll kick this off next week by talking about Charlie Chaplin. So let's both do a little, uh, we, neither one of us have to do a lot of research on Chaplin, but let's do some research on Chaplin, who he was, uh, what he accomplished, and how he was treated. And then I said recently about um, uh, a director, I think it was Quentin Tarantino, as he was, he's, he's being attacked quite a bit right now. And I said, 50 years from now, 50 years from now, another generation will laud him the way our generation lauded Charlie Chaplin and not even pay attention to the supposed um, supposed misdeeds that uh, he or others engaged in during his time. So, uh, Well, so Chaplin um, was also, despite how like the political world treated him, the audiences never gave up on him. His movies continued to do great. They did. So, but here's the thing. But only in one milieu. I just used a French word. Milieu. And that was in silent film. Yes. In silent film. And what's fascinating, this is another thing that we can talk about. This is such a cool thing to talk about, is how some people are ungodly brilliant doing one thing, and when they try something else, none of his talking pictures stay with us. The kid which I think was done in 1906, still stays with us. It was done later than that, but yes, you're yeah, right. Nine, yeah, maybe well, 1912. The only exception to that is The Great Dictator. And I think part of that is where we heard him speak for the first time. Yeah. And we, I think, I remember the first time I heard him speak, it was kind of shocking that he seemed so upper class. Yeah. But the tramp was never upper class. And it's like, wait a minute, that can't be how the tramp speaks. Yeah. So that might have been part of his, but most of those silent film, I don't think any of the silent film comedians made it to talkies. Um, some of the drama ones did, but yeah. even most of them didn't. Yeah, so Harold Lloyd didn't really uh, cross over. Uh, Buster Keaton. Buster yeah. Keaton. Uh, Buster's oh, case. Be your best example, to if we're going to talk about this next week, about um, misdeeds was Fatty Arbuckle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, most people haven't heard of, but... Man, did, he is a good example of like the whole Me Too thing. And if you go back and watch any of his stuff, which we can now, you know, because of Turner Classic Movies and, and YouTube and that, that was a funny man. Yes, he, he was. He, he, would, he, would be, he would be a star today. Okay, man, we got to wrap it up. Um, uh, I want to thank you for, uh, I know they usually don't get up to about three. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> Thank you for getting up. I don't know if you I don't know if you uh, brushed your teeth and combed your hair and put on a clean shirt for this. No, actually, I've been getting up early since I moved here. Yeah, well, it's a beautiful spot. You get to see the sunrise and Yeah, well, it's it's weird. I just kind of it just kind of happened. I don't know why, but I realized, oh, this is getting up at like 6 7 in the morning. It's good. I have so much more time to procrastinate now. Can I tell you why you're getting up early? I'm going to tell you why. Cuz I've been why? to your house. Okay, you you have all those windows. You have this. You have this. You have this. Uh, uh, this stunning, this stunning epic view, and you have all these windows lining one of your walls. The whole wall is nothing but windows. You can't help but get up. Well, no, but in my bedroom, I have the blinds down. Yeah, it seeps through. The morning, the morning comes. It no, tiptoes on cat's what, paws. I honestly think what it was when I first moved here. It was a combination of the move was so difficult and I was so exhausted. I was going to bed early combined with the adrenaline that comes from excitement of being in a new place just was causing me to get up early. And then I realized, hey, this is a pretty good thing. So then I purposely like now if I go to bed late, I will set my alarm to get up early just so I stay on this routine. Because again, the, the hour or two a day, the procrastination time, I love that. Yeah, yeah, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, I do that. Um, okay, well, right. thank you. Thank you. And thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. All right, Jeff, thank you very much. We'll talk to you again next week. Ladies and gentlemen, Jeff Abagov. Let's hear it. <laughs> Bye-bye, buddy. Bye-bye. Well, that was a, that was a cool interview. I like that one. Um, it came through okay? Excellent, excellent. Uh, all right. Okay, so uh, you know what? That's our show for this morning. We're going to wrap it up. Uh, Shirley and I got a, uh, we've got a, um, uh, we got a big weekend ahead of us of uh, uh, music and laughter, which is always in fashion. In, Pan in, uh, in Maricopa, music and fashion was always in fashion. Maricopa, Arizona. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we'll talk to you again next week. If you see us on the street, if you see us on the road, come up and say howdy. Don't say hello, say howdy. Uh, I want to thank you for listening, and uh, I also want to thank uh, my producer, who happens to be my wife, Shirley Lovisic, and the entire gang in here, which uh, also consists of our dogs, Roscoe and Chica. That's it until next week. Bye-bye. But we're talking about the most brilliant mind this world has ever seen. See.